Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 194 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Ruth Madievsky. Ruth is the author of a novel, All Night Pharmacy. It's not just a novel, it's a great novel to be the main focus of our conversation today. It came out, I want to say, July 11th. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It was an instant national bestseller. An indie next pick, All Night Pharmacy, has been named a best or most anticipated 2023 book by over 40 venues including NPR, the Los Angeles Times, Vanity Fair, Vogue, Vulture, and BuzzFeed. Ruth's writing appears in The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, Harper's Bazaar, Them, Plowshares, Tin House, and elsewhere. She's the author of a poetry collection, Emergency Break, and a Tin House Summer Writers Workshop Scholar. She co-founded the Cheborashka Collective, which is a community of women and non-binary writers whose identity has been shaped by immigration from the Soviet Union to the United States. Originally from Moldova, she lives in Los Angeles, where she works as an HIV and primary care pharmacist. You can find her at www.ruthmadievsky.com, www.ruthmadievsky.com, and on social media at first name, last name, Ruth Madievsky. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, congrats on on two at least two huge milestones. One with the the fourteen week old Aria. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you and, so much. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're getting all kinds of sleep all the time, and you're just fresh and energetic, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The the, the fragmented sleep for for, for months on that is doing wonders for. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's so funny. I people used to say that I look much younger than my age. Like people would think that I like was still a teenager when I was in my late twenties, and now uh -huh. nobody ever says that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also congrats on, of course, on all night pharmacy. It's um, I mean, it's been blowing up. It's USA Today. You know, you're on NPR recently, LA Times. How does it feel with the you know juggling these two huge milestones in your life? Thanks so much. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's been incredible, and I feel very, very grateful that readers have found the book because I am normally a really big hustler. I very much have that like immigrant mentality of like mm -hmm. being prepared to do whatever it takes. But, you know, with having a newborn, I really haven't been able to pitch a lot of, you know, essays and stuff. And I've, I've, I've done everything I've said I would do like contractually with like essays and reading lists I've agreed to write, but I haven't really been, um, doing as much hustling as I thought I would for my first mm -hmm. book. And I'm just like so grateful that I have an amazing team at Catapult who's been getting it into readers' hands and that, um, you know, booksellers, librarians, um, early readers, people have been spreading the word because yeah. it, there, there's definitely a, a scenario in which like the book came out and like because of my own failings to <laughs> do as much as I wanted to do, like it might not have found its people. Huh. So I'm very grateful. So is Catapult like an imprint of Penguin Random House? 
so they're they're an independent press, but they're distributed by Penguin Random House. So okay. they so they have the power of that distribution network. We have amazing reps who help get it into bookstores and libraries. So it's it's a nice melding of them having their own kind of unique taste and being able to take chances on books that are maybe a little less like obviously commercial. Hmm. Um, but they have that amazing distribution network. Yeah. Well, dang, my my local library had like 13, 14 person wait list already. Oh, cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So shout out any maybe local bookstores or, or, you know, ways to get the book. I know it's available everywhere, but, you know, what, what are some recommendations for where to buy it, how to buy it? My favorite bookstore in LA is Skylight Books. That's yeah. where I had my launch. That's where I got engaged. Okay. Uh, they have this beautiful ficus tree in the middle of the bookstore. Um, so that that's a great place to get it. Uh, Book Soup in West Hollywood is also great. I'm doing an event there in August with Alexander Chang, who has a short story collection coming out called Tomb Sweeping that I'm so excited to read. Nice. Yeah. Talked about Hollywood and, you know, the book, a lot of the book is set in, I want to say, East Hollywood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Kind of like uh -huh. Silver Lake Echo Park area. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. You know, don't call it the East Side, right? But um, I just wonder about growing up. I know that you were born in Moldova and I mm -hmm. wonder, you know, maybe about um, about language. I'm always so. So, you know, in doing a lot of research on Moldova and I think of one of my former students from there, like is mm. is Romanian the official language? Is that what so, you grew up speaking? I'd love to know about that. Yeah. So my family grew up speaking Russian uh, yeah. because of like kind of the effects of Russification imperialism in the Soviet Union. Uh, other languages that were not Russian were heavily suppressed during that time. Mm -hmm. okay. So my family grew up speaking Russian. I don't speak any Romanian. Mm -hmm. And Moldovan, the Moldovan language and Romanian language are very, very similar. Um, I think there's like a lot of controversy over whether they're different languages or not. So I won't wait into that. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, even though my family is, my mom's side is from Moldova, my dad's side is from Ukraine. Uh -huh. We're not really considered Moldovan or Ukrainian because we're Jewish. Uh -huh. And, you know, at the time that was kind of, a disqualifying thing okay. is that if is that if you're Jewish, you don't get to belong to any national identities. So that that's kind of something I was interested in also as I was writing the book is and as the war has this like genocidal war has broken out in Ukraine is just what are we? We speak Russian, but we're not Russian. We're from Moldova and Ukraine, but we're not Moldovan or Ukrainian. Yeah. Well, so when you, you moved, I would guess maybe in the you know, being that you're what, 25 years old. So probably what, you know, 19 oh, that's flattering. I'm 31 <laughs> <laughs> in like the nineties or 2000. Like I think of yeah, like, 93. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Like, like Mila Kunis and, you know, like, like very, very little Jewish population left right in, in Moldova, for example, is that like, I mean, does that go all the way back to like the, the pogroms of like the early 1900s? I've been a gradual process. Was there something about the breaking up of the Soviet Union that led to a lot more immigration or emigration? Yeah, so th there, there was actually a pogrom in Kishinev, which is where I'm from in, in Moldova. It's the capital. Um, and so, you know, a lot of Jews were killed. And also a lot of us left um, as political refugees. So that's how my family got out as we came as Jewish refugees in the 93. Um, so yeah, after the Soviet Union fell, there was kind of a huge flooding of people out of the region. And at very similar times of the year, which is interesting, like in the Chibarasha Collective, which is my kind of loose community of other post-Soviet writers, mm -hmm. um, no, no one else in the collective, I think, is from Kishinev, but there's people from Ukraine, from Russia, from other places in the former Soviet Union. And some of us literally immigrate on the exact same day, you know, like November 16th. Like a lot of us wow. might have even been on the same, you know, flight or in the airport at the same time. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Wow. 
So, so tell me about growing up in LA and with, I mean, were you able to find, I mean, I know that there, there's a big Russian population in LA. There's a big Russian Jewish mm -hmm. population in LA. I wonder about finding kind of your people, if you will. And, and that doesn't just mean literal. That means like finding your fellow writers, readers, and kind of how language was treated in your house. I mean, was it a big oral um, stories family? Were you, you know, in the library, you know, five times a week? How did that mm -hmm. work? <laughs> both, both. Um, so we spoke Russian at home growing up because my family really, really wanted me to be able to speak Russian and be able to read it, be able to write it. And you know, to their credit, I do, even though it was often annoying when I was younger that my parents would often kind of snap, like, speak Russian, speak Russian. <laughs> um, you know, I'm grateful for it because even now my Russian is still pretty kind of elementary school level. Um, and in fact, that's kind of flattering because I've hung out with some like four and five-year-olds who can speak much more eloquently than me, like truly, like the conjugation uh, is <laughs> nothing nothing to uh, feel jealous about on my end. But um so I grew up speaking mostly Russian um, and learned how to read and write in Russian, which I can do, but slowly. Mm -hmm. um, I took a couple Russian for native speakers classes in college, and that was helpful because mm -hmm. that was like the first time I ever had books learning because um, I have a lot of deficits in my language around things that I never would have heard around the house. Sure. So, for example, my my dad's mom is, you know, kind of an intelligentsia. She's mm -hmm. she has a very sophisticated command of the language. And I often have no idea what she's talking about and have to ask her to really dumb it down for me um, because the big words she uses that I wouldn't have heard around the house are just totally above what I can handle. Um when you, when you took it in college, I mean, was it like riding a bike? I mean, did you feel like boom, it came back? In many ways? It did. You know, it, it's a funny thing. And when and so then and when I went to Moldova and Russia for the first and only time since I immigrated in uh, 2019, so before COVID and before the war broke out, just from being there for two weeks and speaking a lot of Russian, I felt my language getting better. Hmm. And we went over my mom's birthday and I was able to give like a two minute toast in Russian, Yay. which I would struggle with now. Um without having to like substitute in a bunch of English words, hoping that people understand. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question about community, you know, we, we moved to the West Hollywood area, which is very much a Soviet diaspora area, kind of Santa Monica and Fairfax, where, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of restaurants and stores like pharmacies that have names in Russian, like Aptika instead of pharmacy. Mm. Um, you know, at my elementary school, most kids there were Russian speaking um, and we had we had just found a really tight knit immigrant community there. So I've I've grown up surrounded by Russian speakers and people from the Soviet diaspora. Hmm. Uh, so that was never something I had to go searching for. Although finding writers from the former Soviet Union that was something that I did find online in more recent years with the Chibrasha Collective. Yeah. Um, because that wasn't something that I had built in, and that was kind of a revelation, especially to see people who were you know queer and non-binary and you know, much more politically left than the mm. post-Soviet community tends to be. Mm. Uh, that was like incredible. So when you translate the book into Russian, uptika all night? I don't know how you say that, but. <laughs> oh, good question. How do I do that? Let's see. Okay. Um. Oh my God. Yeah, see, I feel like I don't even know how to do it I'm succinctly. I, I, would, I would say like pharmacists open all night, like aptika, katoria, krita noch. But that's like not pithy at all. I said, <laughs> maybe, but I feel like that's not even that right. So kind of case in point. <laughs> My first teaching job was at Third and La Brea. Love so it. 
but pretty dang close to the Fairfax yeah. area, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It was technically Hancock Park, I guess. Mm -hmm. But not too far at all from from West Hollywood. Yeah. Oh yeah, Stones Throw. Definitely. It was it was ironically in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, but it was a Catholic school. That'll do it. Right? Yeah, um, LA is really interesting like that. Oh, so interesting. Miss it. I miss it. Sorry. I won't, I won't cry on I won't cry. <laughs> Uh, how about so how about the the reading and writing part i mean was that something where you know your english was the, the speed was it was sped up much more just by doing reading was that something kind of like self prescribed did you have those those wonderful teachers who put you on to you know my angelou or mm. babysitters club i don't know what what were you reading in those days interesting yeah i mean i've i've always loved to read from a really young age um you know, I did take ESL classes in elementary school and there's just these like hilarious pictures where it's like me and, you know, like my my friend from India, my friend from China. And we're all just like sitting there with our plaster on smiles, holding up signs <laughs> that say like orange, like just, just, just looking so like new to America. <laughs> it's like beautiful melting pot in Cincinnati, Ohio, where we briefly lived for a few years because uh -huh. uh, my dad was doing his medical residency there. So I've, I've always loved to read from a young age and, you know, Soviet culture is very literature heavy. It's, it's, mm -hmm. the, you know, people grow up memorizing poems that they can still recite. And mm -hmm. um, there's a strong literary tradition there. So I've always had people reading to me. I've always loved to read. And at some point, I think in middle school, that translated into a love of writing. Um, and I mean, I think I read kind of all the standard things that people loved. Like, I definitely read Babysitter's Little Sisters. I love the Wayside School series, a series mm -hmm. of unfortunate events. Uh, eventually you know harry potter and then um i was lucky that in middle and high school i had really great english teachers who totally nurtured my love of creative writing and reading and um eventually in college i became friends with other people who were writing very seriously hmm. so even people in college who were sending their work out for publication working on books mm -hmm. which was a world i totally didn't know at all you know i kind of thought that you if you want to be a writer you either never publish anything or you publish a book and make millions of dollars and there was kind of no in between mm -hmm. so I'm very grateful that I met my creative writing community in college and realized like what that world actually looks like because yeah. I was not doing the research on my own I wonder how LA or Hollywood has kind of like become a character in your in your work um or or just influence you I mean you know people think of like Hollywood and Vine but Hollywood like East Hollywood I want to you know I want to say is like Thai yeah Salvador very very and... different vibe than hollywood hollywood which is right. so kind of like touristy and often yucky yeah did you i mean did you feel like did you grow up with celebrities did you grow up with with the immigrant world all of the above like did you did you feel close to that hollywood image it's it's so funny yeah, growing up in la one of the things i love about it is it's such a contradictory complicated mm. city right like yeah. you know it's the kind of city where i've dined neck you know in the same restaurant as Jonah Hill like two or three times <laughs> you know but but it's also like just so it has the it has these areas that are you know you can see the gentrification happening in real time which is something I was interested in writing about like in East Hollywood specifically you have these like bougie coffee shops hmm. and restaurants but you also have these like old dive bars and it's really expensive to live there now but a lot of the houses and apartments are very old and hmm. you know might not have air conditioning um, and, you know, you'll venture downtown and you'll be around these like, you know, Zagat rated top restaurants, which are right. truly one block from Skid Row. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to, you know, step step around someone who's actively having, you know, a mental health crisis right next to you mm -hmm. to, to 
get into your like 300 person waitlist restaurant. Right. Right. So um, who, who really were the, those, those formational transformational writers or, or books or, or works? And then, you know, I mean, we haven't really talked about it yet. You're obviously, I mean, you're a poet as well. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, you just, um, just prose, prose, prose. So who were some of the writers who just odd you? And it was like, I want to do this. And also I can never do this. They're too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that is kind of the feeling is, is that just like towering in shame and how you'll never be as good as <laughs> the writers you look up to, which is also motivating for me. Yeah. I mean, my, my love affair with the written word, a lot of it started with poetry. So people like Richard Sykin, Marie mm-hmm. Howe, Terrence Hayes, um, you know, writers whose command of the language and who are is so arresting and specific, you know, sp- mm-hmm. the specificity is what's of the image is often what really gets me. So people whose, whose works are full of not just, you know, trees, but poplar trees, you know, it's not food, it's, you know, double cheeseburgers, it's mm. cough drops and IV bags and things that are like really specific that capture how it feels to be alive. Mm. Um, that's the kind of poetry I love to read and what I ended up writing. And with fiction, I'm very into voice. Mm. So people like Dennis Johnson, Otessa Moshfeg, mm. um, Brian Washington, Raven Leilani, uh, people where you just get kind of swept away by mm. the narration and you just feel like that book is written by a real person and you feel like the characters are so tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, voice is always what draws me in. And that's the kind of book I wanted to write too, was one where you would follow the narrative voice anywhere. Yeah. So I read your book electronically. So, you know, so I didn't know the end was, was near, right. Mm-hmm. I, didn't know, I didn't necessarily know the end was coming. And I read the last line and I was like, okay, I kept going. And I went back to the last line. You talked about like images versus voice. I mean, the voice throughout the book is incredible of your narrator. Thank we'll talk you. about in a minute. The the image, the last image is so good. Mm. You talk you talk about arresting. Like I kind of like, okay, let me let me read that over a few more times. Like, whoa, like I love that last image. It's not thank not, you. Not necessarily the most happy. We'll talk about if it yeah. Know, yeah. pessimism, right? But it was like, whoa. Yeah. Well, thank you. yeah, I was I was very torn on whether to use it or not because some people, some early readers thought it was very cynical. Mm. Um, I didn't totally see it that way. I thought it was kind of mixed, right? Like there's definitely a heaviness to it, but there's right. also li- some literal light. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking around what it is. Right, right, right. Uh, so you'll have to read the book to find <laughs> out. But uh, I'm, I'm glad it worked for you because I was really 50-50 on whether to keep that line or not. Well, yeah, you, you said cynical, but I feel like that goes with the voice of... Uh, well, maybe of Debbie more than the narrator, but yeah, so, so I'm, I'm such a big fan of of endings that really just resonate once you've closed the book, so to speak. And that's that's one of them for sure. Thank there was, you. I think it was this week or so that, like, you know, the discourse on Twitter was, you know, like that that Drake meme where he's, you know, rushing his shoulder or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I'm going to totally mess it up, but it was something about like poets becoming novelists, novelists becoming poets. You know yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're like, we're like novelists writing poetry, gross, but poets writing novels, huh? I like it. So yeah. which one are you? Um, I would say I'm a poet writing novels. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think that I wrote the novel the way that I write poems, which is to not so much to outline, not to have a sense of here are the themes I want to hit on, mm-hmm. here's the plot, here are the characters, but just finding a voice and being guided by image and by beauty and truth. And I know that all sounds kind of schmaltzy, but mm-hmm. It's how I write poems, you know, is just letting the process of discovery 
guide the guide whatever's happening and mm. I wrote a whole book that way and of course I had to do a lot of editing because you know a 64,000 word novel written like a poem is going to have major plot holes it's going to have mm. a little too much ambiguity for readers to feel content with it's going to have um, characters who aren't fleshed out enough and lines that are just flexes and aren't doing anything for the craft <laughs> so I definitely had to do a ton of editing on it but um, it's how the book got written you happen to remember a line that was a flex that, that was gotten rid of yeah a line a line that I, I mean it was it was mostly just like weird sexual commentary that was just like beating people over the head one, one of them was there there's a deleted scene that was actually uh published in Guernica recently uh which is such a fun way of doing an excerpt by the way is rather than doing a published expert doing a deleted scene um that was a lot of fun that is so cool uh so it was it was a scene in which the narrator picks up some like weirdo from salvation the bar that she's always uh -huh. frequenting and they go back to her place and clearly he thinks that they're gonna have sex and do a bunch of drugs but she hands a marker and is like let's draw each other <laughs> and so she like pulls out this roll of like the medical examination table that they put on, oh, you know, at, at the doctor's office that like crinkly, like almost parchment paper. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very uh, not sexy. And they draw each other. And, you know, he, he actually does an amazing job like drawing. He draws on her with this marker and is actually like a really surprisingly talented artist, but she's a horrible artist. And as she's drawing him, I think she says, I drew hands like penises. I drew penises like flashlights casting rays of jizz. Oh. I, I do miss the flashlights casting rays of jizz. <laughs> it's like a very, I feel like I can see the image, the little squiggly lines. <laughs> oh wow. It, so, I mean, so obviously that it still exists. Like, is that, is that put in the metaphorical like cabinet, you know, drawer for like later? Does that come up in another book maybe? Well, I've, I've now used that multiple times. Like, so I used it in, I think I used it in that piece that was in Guernica, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I also used it in, I wrote a craft essay for Lit Hub um, about, um, I think the, my original title for the piece, it was a play on the Amy Humble short story in the cemetery where Al Jules is buried. I called mm -hmm. it in the cemetery where my bangers are buried. Um, <laughs> it has a different title now. I think it's called like Ruth Matievsky on burying her darlings in a cemetery of bangers. Uh, yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's basically about like, you know, whether other writers keep like a word doc that's basically a mm. cemetery of all the the favorite lines they had to cut that weren't serving oh, their right. books. And I included that line in it, plus a few others. And I interviewed some other writers and had them contribute a line from their oh, recent so books. Cool. It was it was fun. I think it, it also yeah. felt like closure, right? Like you get to uh, th these lines that kind of were dead ends that were just pretty, but didn't do anything for the book. Yeah, you man. kind of get to give them a second life. Oh, man. The book starts off All Night Pharmacy, which again came out July 11th. So we're 11 days into the launch um, with the the original Russian and the English translations, a Russian proverb. With you, it's good, but without you, it's even better. So kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, kind of right? a bitchy proverb, which is so, so, so much of the Russian language is, has that kind of like tongue in cheek yeah. <laughs> sort of humor. Know. Kind of can't live with them, can't live without them, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and so, you know, right early on, there's a great, great description. Uh, you're, you're great with characterization. Um, the narrator, the unnamed narrator, she's talking about her sister. How much older is Debbie than the narrator? A couple years. That's what I thought. Two, three years, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Quote, spending time with my sister, Debbie, was like buying acid off a guy you met on the bus. 
You never knew if it would lead, if it would end with you, euphoric, tanning topless on a fishing boat headed for Ensenada, or coming to in a gas station bathroom, the insides of your eyes feeling as though they've been scraped out with spoons. Often it was both. The first time Debbie took me to Salvation, and Salvation is the is the uh, the bar that we talk about, but just such a great, um, just like boom, like throwing you in. Here's mm-hmm. Debbie. Here is Debbie. What what was the inspiration for Debbie? If if you want to share, who was inspiration? It was kind of like a an amalgam of characters, and maybe just if you could describe her a little bit, like her background. Debbie is the unnamed narrator's older sister, just by a couple years. So when the book starts, the narrator is eighteen, and Debbie is about twenty. And she is chaotic. She's larger than life. She is a total thrill seeker, life of the party, but also someone who is going to drag you on like a really cursed adventure that will end with you guys hooking up with all the wrong people, doing all the wrong drugs in all the wrong places. It, uh, as the narrator says, it, it often leads to the deforestation of her remaining dopamine, oh, um, which is such like a, a line by a poet pharmacist, I think, because yeah. you, you got to have both of those in there. Yeah. Um And in terms of inspiration for her, so like I said, I don't outline. And that first line, spending time with my sister Debbie, was like buying acid off a guy you met on the bus. It's something that I wrote very early in the drafting process and thought, who's talking? Who's Debbie? Where are we taking the bus to? I'm just going to let her keep going. And that's how we got the characters. I basically just let the narrator just say kind of very voicey, specific, um, kind of highly imagistic things about the world she was inhabiting which I was imagining as I was going and hmm. through that we we got this character of Debbie who you know is sort of a Dennis Johnson character a little bit um you know one of these sort of semi-tragic fuck-ups who's still just a lot of fun to spend time with yeah. um and who's searching for something we don't quite know what it is some kind of transcendence some kind of meaning just like the narrator hmm. but it always gets searched for in all the wrong places well, as you as you wrote, and I've heard you say in the interviews, like, you know, it's this idea that Debbie's like the artist and the narrator is like the canvas. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're not like direct opposites, polar opposites, but there's a line that's, quote, Debbie wore her body like she owned it, which is kind of, you know, a subtle, subtle juxtaposition, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like Debbie, Debbie, di- uh, sorry, the narrator didn't, right? And she mm-hmm. talks about, you know, what kind of, you know, walking hunched over and, you know, quote, being a person didn't come naturally to me to me the way it seemed to for others um and we have you know early on we have this night of salvation where the narrator meets ronnie ronnie is like the guy with like the all the cheesy like maybe not literally but all the cheesy pithy sayings in his house right he gets yeah he, he's the one where his lifelong he works in an electronics store but his lifelong dream is to start a self-improvement video game company which is like therapy but fun like he's just so earnest yeah. and, and too sweet for the, the world word, right how how should we feel? How do you how do you feel about Ronnie? Um, Ronnie the boyfriend. Ronnie the I love I love teacher. him. You know, I think that I think that because of the kind of book that this is, because it's so, you know, kind of gritty and seedy, and she meets him at this like bar where all these fuck ups find refuge. I think mm-hmm. that it would be natural to expect him to be some kind of like gross bad boyfriend, mm-hmm. kind of nefarious character, but he's just so pure. Mm-hmm. Um and just loves the narrator so much, even though she doesn't deserve it. And she finds it a little revolting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like she talks about how 
the time she's most attracted to him is when he's giving her driving lessons in right. some parking lot and telling her what to do. Uh, yeah. But then when, when she tries to bring that energy back to the bedroom, he just can't sustain it because he just loves her so much and just can't right. be that like kind of dark boyfriend, you know, who makes you feel a little scared. He's just too safe. And yeah. and then she finds that a little repulsive, um, <laughs> you know, and he, and he's the kind of one of the first people, if not the first person to point out that her relationship with her sister is fucked up and that her sister doesn't make her happy. If anything, whenever they spend time together, it ends horribly. And she, I think she believes him, but she kind of feels like, like, what's the point in you even saying that? Mm. Like, there's there's no world in which me and my sister would ever become estranged. Right. Um, and I think she thinks that part of the reason he doesn't get it, though she can't really articulate it at the time, is that being Jewish, being the child of people who survived Soviet terror and the Holocaust, the idea of just tossing aside a family member who's not good to you just feels very foreign to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think feels like, like, oh, such an American born thing to say to tell me not to hang out with my sister anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Ronnie is Ronnie may be the first psychic or the first prophet of the book. Mm. Huh? Right. Oh, I love I love the idea that this like very pure uh, man yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. is yeah one of the first prophets. <laughs> so you, you talk about salvation. Salvation's a trip. I mean, it's the you know, it's the bar where like, you know, they're doing the r- wrong drugs in the wrong places and. There's that there's that game they click they play the wealthy patron right With yeah like a, most cursed game ever the most cursed game ever it's like a you know truth or dare to the extreme or how much you know the whole like what would you do for this amount of money and yeah it's it's, it's basically this I came up with this uh game me and my husband one of our friends and we were hanging out in Boston one day where we were talking about like you know a very cursed bar game in which you have to like the the concept is that there's a wealthy patron who's going to pay you x amount of money to do something disgusting and degrading uh-huh. and what amount of money would you set your price at to do x act and so at salvation this is a game that people play for fun and sometimes for real yeah. where we have people who are so desperate for connection for money for drugs for love mm. that you know they might actually do the things that that are like haha just kidding unless Right. <laughs> you know from from the game if if the the mood yeah. strikes yeah yeah i was so struck by like that there were almost like literally people mostly men right like just mm-hmm. literally waiting there like listening like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh you said that like oh, okay we can make that happen like yeah sold <laughs> yeah sold cd cd is the word right mm. and and with that though like early on debbie why not debbie says you know what you and ronnie your your hu- your husband and wife and we'll get some free drinks and some you know, free, free drinks and free sentimentality out of it. And from then on, Ronnie and, and the narrator are quote unquote married anytime they're at salvation. And the narrator sees it as well. Ronnie's at least a stable husband, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, maybe hoping to to offset these bad, this, this family situation. Her father is described as their father, Debbie's and the narrator is described as dead eyed. Um, the mom is, is into conspiracy theories, you know, thinks that there are always people watching her. I don't think the mom, it was like, I actually wrote it down somewhere. She was, it was page 116 or so, depending on maybe the copy where the mom is kind of like, fi- like first introduced as in like, we, we hear her in dialogue and all that, mm-hmm. you know, she'd been introduced in exposition. I met such a different mom with that, with the dialogue than I was expecting the mm-hmm. way she's described. You kind of, you know, you're like, come on, you know, why won't you be a better mother to these kids, but also feeling for her. But when you just see her, you know, hear her speak as a regular person, you're just like, oh, man, I wonder if you could talk. And I, I know it's something that's probably 
not probably that is absolutely indescribable is for people to grow up with the traumas of of the holocaust of mm-hmm. soviet you know anti-semitism the pogroms mm-hmm. all that but just about like how the mother is who she is because of what happened to her grandfather to her family so the narrator's mother she has this kaleidoscope of mental illnesses that no doctor can adequately Hmm. diagnose she's very paranoid and has kind of metabolized all these stories about what her relatives went through in the soviet union with soviet terror with her uh grandfather being just taken by the kgb and disappeared one day and with relatives who died in Baban Yar and and in various points in the Holocaust. And even though she hasn't experienced any of these things personally, she's really internalized these stories and has this intense paranoia that any day now the U.S. could turn and the firing squad can always be around the corner. And it's not like the QAnon anti-Semitic type conspiracy theories that people might be imagining. It's really a deeply traumatized, paranoid kind of conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and it does kind of in the beginning of the book i think lead you to think that you know she's a total failure as a mom and that there's maybe no warmth there but she's actually very loving she just Mm -hmm. isn't capable of really functioning in society the way that she could when she was younger before the delusions took hold and i think wants to be there for her kids but just isn't doesn't have the insight to know that the way that she sees the world isn't exactly how the world is Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. You know, the the grandmother is described as quote a hard woman mm-hmm. and she feels like her daughter, right, is kind of like co-opting the traumas and it's like a betrayal. Exactly. And that's that's I think a very generational thing. Mm. Just in general, is I think that older generations, even if you're not an immigrant, I think more often look down on therapy and mm. anxiety and depression medication and why is everyone so soft these days? And I think that that's extra compounded when you have an immigrant background, where it's when you have both a generational difference and also a difference in how one grew up, like as the child of immigrants, the grandchild of immigrants versus the immigrant themselves, or the one who is closer to those historical traumas, then then that those generational differences, I think, can be really compounded in, you know, kind of a a not understanding, like, why do my grandkids need therapy? Why are they depressed? Why are they on medication? Why are they so soft? They didn't go through any of the stuff that I went through. And I think some of that is just the fact that those older generations never had the luxury in some ways to really uh, pay any attention to their mental health or or do any self-care because it was just survival. So that's something that's certainly compounded in the narrator's relationship with her grandma. Yeah, I'm so, so interested in that. I mean, how do you, how, in whichever country, you know, grandma, grandma had one pair of sandals mm-hmm. and you get to go to the mall and you can pick from 10, right? You know, grandma had to choose which days of the week to eat or, you know, grandpa this, grandpa, that, you know, and how do you ever live? You know, it's not your fault. You being, let's say the next generation, right? It's not your fault that you didn't have to, but it's just like, it seems like it's so understandable that there would be this gap. And like you said, some of it's just literally is generational, right? I mean, that's as mm-hmm. old as, as time. But yeah, I wonder what, and I don't expect you to have the, the definitive answer. I wonder what you, it doesn't have to be you, Ruth. It could be you, the general. What do you do with with that? What do you do with being, you know, your your parents or grandparents or grandparents surviving and, and passing on so much to you and giving you so many opportunities that kind of makes it worthwhile? I don't know. 
It's so hard. That's a question that I ask myself that all my immigrant friends wrestle mm. with too, is this idea that we have an unrepayable debt mm. to our ancestors, um, mm. especially the ones who definitely in some ways sacrificed more than they got in return when they came to yeah. America. Yeah. You know, my parents came when they were in their twenties and they speak fluent English. They've been able to have kind of illustrious professional careers here and find community um, with, with the grandparents and especially the great grandparents. It was not like that at all. You know, mm. they, none of them really, other than my mom's mom, who's no longer with us, none of them really spoke fluent English. Mm-hmm. None of them were able to really have the same level of professional development that they did back home. Right. Most of them don't drive and the kind of community they have has become a lot more fragmented. Whereas before you could walk to see, you know, your family, your dearest friends mm-hmm. here in, in LA, it's so much not like that. Um, mm. And so they really gave up so much for their kids and grandkids and great grandkids to have a better life here. And just knowing that that I think makes it so hard to, not just feel these pangs of guilt at whether I'm living mm. in a way that they would approve of or mm. living in a way that honors their sacrifices. And mm. it's something our narrator struggles with too, is this idea of, can I honor my dead ancestors' sacrifices by in, enacting freedoms that were never even on the table for them, even mm. if the specific things I act on are things that they might find revolting, just by virtue of being able to make these choices, is that in and of itself a way of honoring them? kind of an open question in my own life, but it's, I'm, I'm inclined to say yes, because it lets me off the hook a little bit. (laughs) Thank you. I was going to read that, that quote that was real similar. I mean, it was grandma's birthday, right? And whoo, she, she, she brought up some heavy stuff. Like happy birthday, grandma. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's such, that's such like a Jewish uh, post-Soviet orientation toward life is Mm -hmm. to just like drop the heaviest shit on people like, ha ha. Remember that time that, you know, my, and died of a kidney infection and her like impotent ex-husband you know buried you know buried her in some like far off cemetery while he gave all her jewelry to his mistress haha ha, have some more food oh man i wonder about the the father and the lack of his the lack of his real presence in their lives and i mean play maybe playing amateur psychologist a little bit here about how that affected debbie and and the narrator and just kind of like the way that they acted out so their father is very much absent he is not technically divorced from their mom Mm. but he is mostly a non-entity and he doesn't make a ton of effort to know his kids after he moves out when they're teenagers he you know he takes them out for lunch sometimes he sends them checks on hanukkah and their birthdays he'll call them once in a while but they sense his lack of enthusiasm toward parenthood and Mm. just kind of ghost him and he goes along with that he doesn't really push the subject too much Um, And part of it is that he feels like a martyr for, you know, quote unquote, dealing with their mom and her mental illnesses for Mm. as long as he did for really being her primary caretaker for a long time as she was in and out of the hospital with various um, psychotic episodes. And eventually he just can't take it anymore. And I think he has this sense that he deserves to have a happy life away from chaos and you know we all want a happy life away from chaos you can't you can't blame him for that but it involves really disentangling himself from his uh dysfunctional family in a way that leaves his two daughters feeling like they don't have a father Hmm. you know debbie is with is with dominic who's just kind of mr right now i guess right Mm -hmm. in some ways he's you know 
plays music and yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, but Debbie tells her sister like, Hey, let's be real. Like all relationships are transactional. And, you know, that probably throws uh, the narrator off because she's like, well, Ronnie's kind of the right guy or maybe or I'm not really sure. But, you know, she does yeah, definitely gets bored of Ronnie at times. She'll go to salvation sometimes at the end of the night, and even though I live with him. I wonder about like she she has like the knife and the statue. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the narrator. She kind of talking about which one kind of like which one am I and ideas of like the knife block versus the knife. I wonder about how like the knife, the statue kind of like relate to her, like her agency or lack thereof. Yeah. So she, the narrator gets a job working as a page, at the library of a community college where she had intended to enroll, but she keeps putting it off for vague reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a big part of it is that she just simply doesn't feel ready to do it. It doesn't feel like she has her life together enough, but she always, always come up with excuses about not having decided what classes to register for and, this is sort of an in-between step where she's getting a job to make money and it's at the library of the campus. So she's peripheral to it. Um, and at one point she gets promoted to library assistant and she ends up quitting after that because the thought of ascending in this job she never wanted is revolting to her yeah. and makes her feel actually like more of a failure um, as if this is her permanent place in life. And she just doesn't feel like that's what she's meant to be doing. And she ends up spending her last paycheck at a pawn shop getting a knife and this like statue of like a naked woman fingering herself on the moon, which if you've been to a pawn shop in LA, <laughs> you've probably does. seen 10 of those. <laughs> it's like, which statue, which pawn shop <laughs> which... Um, is, is it silver? Is it gold? I've seen them all. And she, you know, she, she kind of props the statue up on a stool as if it's on a pedestal in their apartment. And Ronnie is like, Oh, that's hot. It kind of looks like you. Mm. And she's so annoyed by that. She's like, that's not the point. It's not why I bought it. But, you know, why did she buy it? Yeah. Um, And she said that it's something about how, you know, that woman kind of wears her body like she owns it, like Debbie, and how she Mm. there's something fearless about her. Mm -hmm. And the narrator really wants, she doesn't want to be canvas anymore. She wants to be the artist. She doesn't want to be the knife block. She wants to be Mm. the knife. Mm. And yeah, so both the knife and the statue that she pawns are her way of trying to manifest a life in which she calls the shots of her own body and her own life yeah and you know it, it ends up happening that way through violence at first mm-hmm. and kind of one of the narrator's arcs is you know will she be able to to harness her own agency in a way that's not just as chaotic and dangerous as the way that yeah. debbie does yeah i mean there's something cool about like oh let's let's be spontaneous and all this but you know she's she's a 19 year old i mean whatever it doesn't matter right she's a, she's a 19 year old who you know, rolls with this flow and this chaos a lot of times and mm-hmm. it becomes, it becomes chaotic. It becomes out of control and there are drugs and, you know, all the different types of drugs they do and oxys and benzos. And she knows all the names. And I I wonder too, just about like, like, like a physical pain, this idea of like numbing yourself with drugs or, you know, there are times where she's like literally pinching her thigh or pinching part mm-hmm. of her, like feel something she wanted Ronnie, you know, to be, to be rough with her, whether it's sex or other stuff at times and then there's you know there's one time she even like cuts him with a knife right yeah he, he says that she can if she wants to because he, he's just so innocent it's it's not mm-hmm. even like a weird sex thing yeah he, he's just he she's just in a lot of you know emotional pain over mm-hmm. another fight with debbie and he tells her that she can cut him a little if she wants to with her knife mm-hmm. and the knife is so sharp that it takes so little yeah um and it's this this moment of of him letting her transfer some of her pain to him mm-hmm yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say elephant in the room because it is definitely described, but, you know, the fact that both Debbie 
and the Native Red, they're they're sex abuse, they're they're sex abuse mm-hmm. survivors, right? Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, the more that I read, the more that I just know about life, I just feel like there's traumas, especially from like sexual traumas, are just so rife, so so much about what what pushes so many of us, right? And Debbie didn't really feel like she was a victim, right? Not like in the cool, like feminist way, like I'm not a victim. Maybe it is. But I wonder if you could kind of describe her, like how she felt that she wasn't necessarily a victim while while the narrator definitely was. The narrator was, you know, nine years old and it was handyman at the apartment, all that. And, you know, who knows how many scars she's not even aware of that she has from that. But yeah, just like, is Debbie just like, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to get through everything. I will survive this. Why, Why is it she's so slow to to realize that she was a victim. You know, so both the narrator and Vic and Debbie don't realize at the time that they are sexually abused, that what happened shouldn't have happened. You know, in the narrator's case, she's nine and has never had any form of sex ed and really doesn't understand that -hmm. what's happening shouldn't be happening. And with Debbie's case, she's 16. It's with her like pediatrician but not in the context of a doctor's office in the context of debbie already working underage at a strip club and him Mm -hmm. just showing up and being a customer and you know she sees it as an affair that they're having where they Mm -hmm. where they're sort of seeing each other for a while and you know i think both of them have trouble both debbie and the narrator have trouble recognizing themselves as victims because they think that they asked for whatever it was they think that they were willing participants and whatever it was Mm -hmm. you know the narrator has a lot of shame because even though she was a kid and i think that the lines there are pretty clear that you know whether you are quote unquote like okay with it or going along with it or not as a kid obviously it shouldn't be happening but mm-hmm. i think that she feels a lot of shame over the fact that she let that happen to her and that you know she saw herself as a willing participant and thought that that made her in some ways even more fucked up than the transgressor mm-hmm. um and you know i was interested in the way that these sort of slipperier forms of sexual abuse can compound someone's trauma response where even though I think we understand that, you know, a 16 year old and her pediatrician, that's obviously really fucked up and same with a nine year old and any adult, but you know, Mary Gateskill has this really interesting essay. I'm forgetting the title, but she talks about how she's been raped, I think three times. And the time that was what I think we might think of as the most sensational or violating which was where you know it was like a stranger in an alley with a knife kind of thing was in some ways the least traumatizing because she had an easy name for it and it was easily Mm -hmm. categorizable Mm -hmm. and it's the experiences with people you know or where where you know she felt coerced but not at knife point just kind of by societal pressures or interpersonal pressures that those are the ones that can often feel the most psychically damaging because you don't know what to call it you don't know what your own um, your own level of complicity is. And like, of course, I don't think there is a level of complicity there, but I think that it's really easy to go down that path of what you could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it's a stranger in an alley with the knife, you know, the only thing you could have done is not be in that alley. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so with both the narrator and Debbie, they have a lot of trouble seeing themselves as victims because they feel like they made decisions that led them to those places and that sense of guilt and shame definitely does reverberate in, hmm. um, you know, the rest of their arcs in the book. Well, yeah, I get into the point in the chronology where I you know, kind of leave it alone because I don't want to get into the plot spoilers. I mean, the plot is so, so cool. It's broken into four parts. The book is, and there's so much change. You know, I do want to talk about the codependency part of it, right? I mean, Ronnie is saying like, hey, basically, and he may not put the word to it, but he's like, hey, this is a codependent like relationship mm-hmm. with your sister. Like, this is not good. 
great stories to tell and some fun and a lot of fun, but it's like, this is not, it's not helpful. And, you know, and they, Debbie and her sister definitely have, have it out, especially, you know, in one, in one particular case that really leads mm-hmm. to their, to, to a separation of sorts. Right. Sasha comes into life. Sasha as like her amulet mm-hmm. as, as um the, the narrated amulet when she gets the job working at the hospital in the waiting room. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder about, Ideas of of fate is the narrator. Does she feel like she's kind of just a you know a leaf in the wind or whatever? What's the Katy Perry paper bag in the wind? <laughs> you know, and kind of without the agency. How is she so willing to take Sasha into her life? And I guess is Sasha in some ways uh, doppelganger is not the word, but like a fill in for her sister, like someone to look up to, someone to idolize. Mm. Sasha is a Soviet Jewish refugee who pops into the emergency room where the narrator is working as a secretary one day and she says to her you know i'm your amulet and Mm. she tells her that she's going to spiritually guide her back on the path the universe wants her on and you know it sounds like a crock of horseshit but if you've lived in la or spent much time here it's a very reasonable thing for someone to say to you (laughs) i'd be surprised yeah Yeah, like i I would be surprised someone hasn't said that to you already and (laughs) you know the narrator recognizes that this sounds like an absolute grift but Sasha is beautiful and alluring and um, they have really interesting conversation. They go on this walk around um, East Hollywood and they really vibe and the narrator kind of thinks like, well, even if this is a scam, I like the idea of being, of having a friend. This person doesn't want money from me. She just wants to Mm. guide me in her own way. And she finds herself trusting her. Um, And that's a big part of Sasha's appeal is that she would not do any of it for money. She really feels Mm. that this is her, duty in life is to spiritually guide people um and so yeah they embark on this psychosexual uh spiritual guidance relationship with very ambiguous power dynamics and Mm. in a lot of ways sasha helps the narrator embrace her own agency and act on her desires even if they're unruly but she also has that prescriptiveness that Debbie had. And it's in some ways, just another person telling the narrator what to do and how to live. Mm. Yeah, definitely. How old would you, would you say Sasha is? How do you, do you picture her? I would say she's around Debbie's age. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So just a couple years older than the narrator. Definitely. You know, they, they even take a trip to to Moldova to parts of mm-hmm. Russia, I think later on, and there's the cemetery and there's incredible images and, and just thoughts that are put in the reader's head, um, you know, the the Jewish cemetery, and it's often been neglected, and you know whose name is that there, and just mm-hmm. ideas of what were their lives like, and you know, going to the same ideas we've been talking about with grief and and traumas and generational, you know, passing on things from generation to generation. I get, you know, so you talked about like the the psychosexual, like the there's such a contrast because when they go to Moldova, Moldova and you know parts of the former Soviet Union, there's you know very strictly anti LGBT, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we read about it in the news, we've seen all the stories, the activists, etc. And then you know, in the U.S., they're they're fairly open. I mean, I don't think they both know it's a relationship for a while, like a you know like mm-hmm. a partnership. I wonder about like the contrast i wonder about is this you know you kind of like with a with a message or is this like you know what as it should be in, in the u.s you know it's just kind of nonchalant it's there is them explore you know it's her exploring her sexuality it's their relationship cool no big deal or is it kind of like you're kind of, maybe kind of like making a point oh definitely not making a point uh yeah. I, I try to avoid any prescriptiveness in, right. in writing um 
Yeah, I was, I think that the, the relationship evolved naturally in the writing process. I definitely didn't know when I wrote the character of Sasha that there would be, um, well, I knew that there was, there was kind of a spark and a flirtation instantly, but I didn't know if it was going to be acted on and if so, in what way. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that in, in the US where most of their uh, relationship, friendship takes place, you know, there isn't the same need to put labels on it. And there is this kind of safety and exploration especially in los angeles which can Mm. be a very queer city Mm. but when they go to moldova suddenly they have to be very buttoned up and can't do anything really that would suggest that they might be more than friends and you know the former soviet union all those parts all those countries are still very very anti-gay and you know in the years since i drafted this novel now now russia has these very intense um, anti-gay propaganda laws that before the idea was that you can't have any gay propaganda, which is anything that um, makes, you know, queer life be shown in a positive light Oh boy! That, that children could access. And now even adults, I think, are, are, you know, could be seen as the victims of gay propaganda where even adults mm. can't handle positive depictions of queer life. Wow. Um, so, yeah, very, very unsafe place for them to be out. Oh my gosh. Well, what are the odds? Like, apparently there are no queer or gay people in the former Soviet Union. Huh? Yeah, not a single one. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Crazy, crazy coincidence. Yeah. We talked about the grief and the traumas. There's some great lines. Um, one of them is Debbie says, you know, this is early on in the book. Golems are alive, but incompletely. Their souls are unstable. They can be a force of protection or great destruction. I feel like that could be talking about her. That could be talking about what people do with traumas, you know, can be a force of protection or great destruction. Page 108, um, again, in my particular copy, and it's just the the ifs, the ifs, the ifs, the ifs. And it's so moving. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's basically, quote, if our great grandfather hadn't been murdered, would Debbie have climbed the railing? This is one of the stunts she'd done, right? Like at the Mm -hmm. Salvation Bar. If our mother hadn't internalized these stories, would Debbie and I have finished the movie and gone to bed? If our movie, if our mother wasn't unreachable, if our father had loved us enough, if the, and then it becomes this fragments. If the pediatrician hadn't, if the handyman hadn't, I, I was just so struck by that. And again, you know, it, it engenders sem- sympathy, empathy, you know, for mom, for example, and just the whole like butterfly effect, right? Mm-hmm. Without, again, without giving away the ending. I feel like, and not in a cheap, cheesy way, and in a way like, I want to know more. This book is so good. Do you anticipate telling more of 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 Sasha's story, more of the narrator's story, more of Debbie's story, more of the the pre, maybe like a prequel? Do you do you feel like there's any more material here, whether it's these literal characters or the or the the issues that come up in this book? Hmm, I wonder. I've thought about that a lot. Um, you know, I think we don't see a ton of sequels in literary fiction yeah uh you know i I mean one big exception being like elif bottoman's book Mm. books like the idiot and either or which you know goes so well together i think there's supposed to be another one and i mean we're all eating that shit up um you know i think there's definitely still a lot of texture to explore with these characters um i don't know if i'll do it in another book Mm -hmm. um and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that just you know only a few months out from having a baby the thought of any writing any next book feels so just almost impossible, even though mm. I know I want to get to it soon. Mm-hmm. Um, just imagining having the time to do it and the brain space to imagine whole worlds feels very hard. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think my 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 first thought is 
to kind of try to find new voices and to get into my head. Mm -hmm. But I certainly do feel like there's more here. And I I am very into the narrator's voice still and would love to write more from her perspective. And I think that's the hard part of writing a new book is getting a different voice in my head. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the writing is is beautiful. I I, I did some of the, the beautiful phrases, the, the paragraphs, the excerpts. The plot is very, very interesting, very L.A. in some ways. And, you know, detectives involved and, you know, the, the medical. We didn't even talk a lot about the, uh, you know, about benzos and opiates and the mm-hmm. epidemic and and fraud and ways that people get their pills and sell their pills. Just the salvation stories along alone are, are worth the price of admission of the book <laughs> and with you know with a book that's often so chaotic it does like talk about kind of end on a quiet note and i mean that mm-hmm. in the best possible sense so the book has everything and there's good great reason that it's all over usa today npr la times oh thank you long way of saying congratulations Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, Maria Kuznetsova, who is another incredible uh, post-Soviet Jewish writer, she wrote the books um, Oksana Behave and Something Unbelievable. Okay. Um, she interviewed me for Full Stop and she asked me, is the reason it's called All Night Pharmacy because the book is like an all night pharmacy where it's it's a mystery. It's a queer coming of age story. It's an immigrant story. There's all kind of shit in here, just like an all night pharmacy. You could find anything. Yeah. And I thought that was so brilliant and so funny. So now I'm telling people that's why it's called that, <laughs> even though she fully told me that like three weeks ago. <laughs> Congratulations. And in, in when, I'm not going to say if, when that next book, when the next poetry collection comes out, I know it's going to be a banger. Thanks so much for talking oh, to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to episode 194 with Ruth Madievsky. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. The July bonus episode is with Daniel Allen Cox. That episode is not to be missed. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, It's just me, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. If you like what you hear, sign up for Patreon, or retweet one of my links to an episode, or tell a friend, please, I really appreciate your support. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 195 with Jessica Cuello, whose book, Liar, was selected by Dorian Lowe for the 2020 Barrow Street Book Prize. Her latest book is Yours Creature, which is a creative and stirring look at the life of Mary Shelley through poetry. This episode will air on July 28th.
For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Ruth Madievsky, whose work, full of bangers, like All Night Pharmacy, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.